I want to tell you a story about a guy named Jim. Jim lived back in the 40s and 50s. He had just gotten out of basic training, and he's visiting his home before being deployed. To Jim, it is likely that he's going to Korea. Now, here's the problem. Jim's rather big, and he's pretty slow, and he's a bad shot with a rifle. So in Jim's estimation, he's going to die. And it's kind of funny, but he means it. And so he comes back home to Colorado, and he's asking everyone he can, do you have anything worth living for that's worth dying for? <laughs> because I'm about to go to Korea, and I'm going to get killed there. And as, as he's asking one person after another, they're giving them their answers of, I'm living for this, or I'm living for that. And it's pretty dissatisfying. Until he comes to this young, skinny missionary girl named Peggy, and he asks, that question, do you have anything worth living for that's worth dying for? And without missing a beat, she rattles off, I'm living for Jesus Christ and I would gladly die for him. Jim wasn't quite ready for that and the conversations ensued. And a few months later, Jim gets on his knees and he accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And thank God Jim didn't go to Korea because yeah, he was big and slow and probably would have died. Instead, he got deployed to Germany so he was all right. And when he came back home, he found that missionary girl, and time went by, and they ended up becoming man and wife, Jim and Peggy Glazner. I've got some more stories to tell about them here in the future. But from that moment on, Jim and Peggy dedicated their life to living for Jesus, and one day dying for him. And I feel like this is an appropriate story to tell, because as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, we're coming to to some stories of death. Genesis begins in a garden, God creating a good world that's good, it's right, it's perfect. And God blesses humanity and prepares a place for them to live in harmony with him and to enjoy his blessings. But we rebel, we act foolishly, and we think that God has held out on us. And so humanity seizes what is good in their own eyes rather than trusting in God, and everything spirals out of control from there. But God makes a plan that through the family line of a man named Abraham, he's going to bless the world. And so Genesis traces the stories of God's interactions with Abraham and with Isaac and with his son, Jacob. And recently, towards the end of the book of Genesis, one of Jacob's sons, a boy named Joseph, and we hear his story. And if you're not familiar with it, I will try to recap it in brief. This is one of the most dysfunctional families you will ever encounter. Joseph is the favorite son of 12 boys, and when the opportunity comes, his, son, his brothers originally were planning to murder him, and then they decide, no, we can do better than that. We'll sell him into slavery, pocket the money, lie to our father about it, and go live the rest of our lives in peace. And that's just what they did. Little did they know that in Egypt, as a slave, Joseph would undergo the original rags to riches story where he goes from a prison pit to being ruler over the entire land as Pharaoh's second man, uh, second man in charge of the entire kingdom. 20 years later, here come the brothers down to Egypt. There's a famine in the land and they need food and Egypt has it. And Joseph happens to be the guy in charge of this project. He recognizes his brothers, they don't recognize him, and what ensues is this masterful plot to see, has anything changed in the family dynamic? We told that story last week. And it all culminates in this moment where the new favorite son, Benjamin, is at risk of becoming a slave in Egypt himself, and the older brother, Judah, who had taken the lead, 
offers himself as, as a sacrifice. He says, don't take Benjamin, that would kill our father, take me instead. And the whole plot comes out into the open. The brothers discover Joseph is alive and that it's okay. And what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And so the family is reconciling. And now the brothers are on their way back up into the land of Canaan to tell their father, Jacob, um, remember how he's told you that Joseph was dead? Well, not true. Actually, he's ruler in Egypt, and he says, come down. He's going to take care of us from here on out. And so they came up out of Egypt. And they came to their father in the land of Canaan, and they told him, Joseph is alive. In fact, he's the ruler of all Egypt. And Jacob was stunned, and he did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts that Joseph had sent to carry him back, you know, ancient versions of U-Haul trailers, and the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, I am convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and I will see him before I die. And so Israel set out like his grandfather Abraham before him, leaving the place of his, uh, where he lived to go to the land that God had prepared for him. So Israel sets out with all that he has. And God speaks to Israel, verse 3, in a vision at night. And he says, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. And I will go, I will go down to Egypt with you. I'm going to be with you, and I will surely bring you back again to this land, to the promised land. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. And so Jacob left Beersheba and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives and the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. And so Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and their possessions that they had acquired in Canaan. And so Jacob brought with them to Egypt his sons, his grandsons, his daughters, his granddaughters, all his offspring. And we're given a genealogy where we trace the 12 sons of Jacob. And in total, there are 70 of them. The sons of God now number the same as the nations of the world in Genesis 10. God has created a new humanity in the earth. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. And when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and he went to Goshen to meet his father Israel and as soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and he wept for a long time. And Israel said to Joseph, now I'm ready to die since I've seen for myself that you are still alive. I'm good. I'm good. Well, things weren't entirely good. This group of immigrants had now come down to Egypt to stay, but they need a place to stay. And so Joseph hatches a plan. He says, we're going to go to Pharaoh and here's what we're going to say. We're all a bunch of shepherds and we've always been a bunch of shepherds because the Egyptians, they don't like shepherds. And so they'll let us live in the land of Goshen, like the fancy suburb, a kind of away from everyone else to live on our own. And that's just what they do. They go to Pharaoh and he says, what is your occupation? And they say, your servants are shepherds just as our fathers were. And they also said, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pastures. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, he says, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. 
And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Like, Joseph, you're rather exceptional yourself. So if any of your brothers are good, they can, they can prosper and take care of my stuff. And so Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Kind of a sour note to sound at the end of your life. My wanderings have been hard, bad, and short. In the next chapter, Jacob will talk about his life and his blessings to his grandchildren and and the picture he portrays there is very different. So one of two things are going on. Perhaps, perhaps the next 17 years that Jacob will have in the land of Egypt will change his story and his reflections. But I think perhaps the author is giving us a subtle clue that as we dra- travel through the rest of the Torah, we'll, we'll come to see. Children, honor your father and mother that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And here we have Jacob, the one who deceived and lied to his father, living short in the land, having a hard time. Kids, honor your parents. Well, then Jacob blesses Pharaoh and goes out from his presence. And Pharaoh is, this Pharaoh, I should say, is one who is blessed abundantly because he has been a blessing to God's people. And he's going to be blessed uh, a lot here in the next story. Oh, my clicker just stopped advancing. There we go. And so they settled in the land of Goshen and Joseph provided his father and brothers and all their household with food, very important in a famine, according to the number of their children. Now, there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe, both in Egypt and Canaan. uh, These two lands, they wasted away because of the famine. And Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain that they were buying. And he brought it into Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh now has all the silver. And when the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and they said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money's all gone. Well, then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock, which presumably is now being put underneath the care and direction of the Israelites. They're pretty good with livestock. And when that year was over, they came to him the following year, and they said, "Uh, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? So buy us and our land in exchange for food. And we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, though the land may not become desolate. And so Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. And the Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The only exceptions are the priests who had a special allotment for Pharaoh. And so they didn't have to sell their land. And so Joseph said to the people, now that I've bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here's seed for you so you can plant the ground. But, condition, when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. And the other four-fifths you may keep 
as seed for the fields and food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. Turns out being sold into slavery, if it's to the right master, is not such a terrible thing. In fact, we were going to die, and servitude to this master has brought us life. You've saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. And so it was made a law. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen, and they acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So the entire land is suffering from a famine. No one has any money, any livestock, or any land anymore. And God made a way for his special people to prosper, to have food, to have property, and in the words of Genesis 1:28, to increase and be fruitful and to multiply. God is building a great nation, and one day his promise is going to come true. He's going to bring them home. So Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. And when the time came for him to die, he called for his son Joseph, and he said, If I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. Just as Abraham and Isaac before him, bury me in the place of hope, in the little garden spot, in the cave of Machpelah, in the field bought from Ephron the Hittite. I will do as you say, Joseph says. Swear to me. (laughs) Jacob means it. And so Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. Now, sometime later, Joseph is told, your father is sick. He's ill. And so he takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when Jacob told, your son, Joseph, has come to you, he rallies his strength and he sits up. And Jacob tells Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me. And he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples. And I will give your land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Jacob has lived his life in hope of God's promises. And now as he's approaching his death, God's promises are on his mind. And so uh, Jacob tells Joseph, he says, now, listen, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And any kids you have after them will be yours, and their uh, territory they inherit will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. So Joseph is the one who's receiving the blessing. Now, he's getting a double portion. These grandsons, they'll be counted as, as my sons in their own right. They're going to get, you're going to get a double portion through your children. As I was returning from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. And while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath, and I buried her there on the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And when Israel saw the sons Joseph, of Joseph, he said, who are these? They're the sons God has given to me here, Joseph said to his father. And Israel said, bring them close so that I may bless them. Now, Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, he could hardly see. And you attentive readers, I know you're picking up echoes and you're like, wait a second. Jacob's dad, Isaac, could hardly see. And when the day of his death approached, he called his sons to bless them. And there was a masterful trickery that was pulled in the giving of the blessing. What's going to happen here? Well, story continues. Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, 
I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. So Joseph took them off Israel's knees and he brought them close. He had Ephraim at his right hand facing Jacob's left hand, the place of less honor. And then Manasseh, his firstborn, towards Jacob's right hand. But Israel reached out his right hand, the hand of blessing and favor, and he put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he double-crosses his son here, he puts his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blesses Joseph by blessing his children. He says, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm. It's quite a difference from short, few, and miserable have been my days. No, the God who has been my shepherd all my life and the angel who's delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. And may they be called by my name and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. Well, when Joseph realized he's being (laughs) double-crossed, and that the right hand was on Ephraim's head. He tries to remove it. He's like, no, dad, that's not right. And his father refuses to move his hand. He says, I know my son. I know who the firstborn is. And he will become a people and he will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. And so he blessed him that day and he said, Put your, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Like from here on out, these two sons will become so numerous and so prosperous that people are like, may God make you like them. And so he put the younger ahead of Manasseh. It's a thing we've seen all throughout the book of Genesis. You have Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau and Joseph over his brothers and now Ephraim over Manasseh. It turns out the one who is blessed, the one who receives God's promises are never the ones that we think deserve it. It always comes as a, as a gift, as just grace from God. Well, then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will take you back to the land of your fathers. And you will get, I will give you one more ridge of land uh, to you than to your brothers, the ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. So this is a plural you. God's going to bring you all back to the promised land. And, and Joseph, I'm going to give you Shechem. It, the word ridge of land, it sounds like that place that Levi and Simeon murdered, <laughs> that whole town. He says, Joseph, you'll get that section of land. And so then Jacob calls for his sons. And he said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. In the last days, in the end times. The phrase here, it's the opposite of what, we occur, what occurs in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Jacob says, let me tell you what's going to happen to you in the end. Turns out, All the stories in Genesis are about the past, but the poetry, most of it, is about the future. All of human history occurs within the pages of the book of Genesis, the beginning and the end. And so Jacob is going to launch into a poem for each of his sons, and he's going to offer hope. And one of the conflicts that we have not yet quite figured out is this whole blessing thing. Joseph is getting the blessing, but if you were paying attention, there's one key detail that we haven't yet resolved. Who is going to take the lead? Because Isaac was put over his brothers. Jacob was put over his brother Esau. And Joseph receives a double portion, but there's no no mention of 
who's going to take the lead? So let's see which son is going to get it. Reuben, you are my firstborn, <laughs> my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up on your father's bed onto my couch and you defiled it. Remember that sordid story. I told you this is a messed up family. Reuben sleeps with his mother-in-law, um, his father's concubine, Bilhah. And finally, upon Jacob's deathbed, he brings out some sort of judgment on that. Reuben, you won't be in the lead anymore. All right, let's try boys two and three. Simeon and Levi, our brothers, their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. They have killed men in their anger. They've hamstrung oxen as they pleased, cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Again, this echoes that story in chapter 34. These two kids wipe out an entire town uh, unjustly because of what happened to their sister. And when we get to the book of Joshua, this promise will come true. Simeon will be swallowed up by the tribe of Judah and hardly heard of ever after this. And Levi will be scattered across all the communities of Israel. All right, Judah, your brothers will praise you. His name means praise. It's a fun wordplay. And your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. So the lead goes to Judah. And your father's sons will bow down. It, it sounds like Joseph. It sounds like Joseph's dreams of having all his brothers come and bow down. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. If this was in the northwest of America, we'd say like a grizzly bear. Like Judah, you are like the predator that no one should mess with ever. All right? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his legs. So God's promise to Abraham and to Jacob that kings will come from your lineage the kings are going to come from the line of Judah. A series of kings until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So from Judah will come a line of kings until someone who will retain the kingship forever, who will rule over the entire world. I mean, like Genesis is talking about Jesus already? Yes. Yes, or as Jesus said, didn't you know that Moses wrote about me? The obedience of the nations will be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. There's other things going on with these image, but it's at least portraying a time of such prosperity that this valuable grapevine is so common, I'll tie an animal to it that I'm going to use wine to do my laundry. Like, why not? Well, then we go to Zebulun and Issachar, get to the tribe of Dan. This one's interesting. And Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Sounds pretty good. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backwards. And on one level, we could say, perhaps this is saying, Dan, you're going to be victorious over your enemies who are more powerful than you. That, that could be it. Or Jacob could be saying that one of his own sons, one of the sons of God is actually a son of the serpent. 
Remember Genesis 3? I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, you will strike, you will crush his heel. You're going to bite his heel, and he's going to strike your head. Dan, you're like the serpent that bites the heels. And then Jacob says, I look for your deliverance, Lord. We're still waiting salvation. We're still waiting for that snake crusher to come. Well, then he moves through Gad and Asher and Naphtali, and we get to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. As the later biblical authors will pick up this image and develop it, they'll just say, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and all he does, he prospers. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber. And we go, wait, wait a second. There's nothing about archery in the story of Joseph. Welcome to Hebrew poetry. Joseph, what you endured being sold into slavery and the afflictions you, you encountered in the land of Egypt and your exaltation to the secondhand throne of Pharaoh, it's like being at war. It's like being under attack by archers and you're overcoming um, what you were facing is like you being an archer that remains true and strong. And I'm sorry because of the formatting there. It says because of the strong arm of the mighty one. Uh, I forget the exact words. <laughs> because of God, God strengthened you. Because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Because of your father's God who helps you. Because of the almighty who blesses you with the blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the bread and womb. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains and the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. So Joseph gets the blessing. Judah gets the scepter. And then Benjamin is like a wolf, and all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each of them the blessing appropriate to him. <laughs> and some of them were like, how is that a blessing? feels more like a curse. I don't know. I didn't write it, but that's what it is. And so then Jacob on his deathbed with his sons gathered around him, gives him these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me in my father, with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. And that little taste of Eden near where Abraham ate with God in his presence underneath the tree. Bury me there. That's where Abraham and Sarah were buried. That's where Isaac and Rebekah are buried. That's where Leah is buried. I want to be there. And when he had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed. He breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. He lived his life in the hope of God's promises, trusting God's word, and he died in hope, trusting God's word. And so Joseph weeps for his father, he has his dad embalmed, and he goes and he asks Pharaoh, can I go up and bury my father as I promised? And Pharaoh says, go. And so this giant entourage of Israelites and Egyptians come up and bury Jacob like royalty. And all the Canaanites are seeing it, and they're like, whoa, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. So they name it Abel Mizraim, like the weeping place of Egypt. And Jacob's sons did as he had commanded him, and they bury their father, and then they all go back to Egypt because the famine's not quite over. Actually, no, it is at this point. Forgive me. Well, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, huh, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and he pays us back for all the wrong things we did to him? 
Remember Esau? Esau was like this. Esau said, when my father Isaac dies, I'm going to get even with my brother Jacob. And now the brothers are worried. "Uh Uh-oh, dad's gone. What now? And so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. No, he didn't, but yes, he did. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please, forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came, and they threw themselves down before him and said, We are your slaves. They said, Please don't kill us. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Second time we face that question. In chapter 30, Am I in the place of God? Am I one who can give life? No, God is the one who gives life. And now Joseph says, am I in the place of God? Am I the one to give death? No, God is the one who controls life and death. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph is like Noah, a chosen one through whom God is saving the world from a calamity, this time a famine, not a flood. Joseph said, you meant it for harm. God meant it for good. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. He forgave them. So Joseph stayed in Egypt and all his father's family. And he lived to be 110 and he saw his great, great grandkids. And then he told his brothers, he says, I'm about to die. God will surely come to your aid. Things have soured in the land of Egypt, but God's going to come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised you on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're living for the promise and we're dying for the promise. And Joseph made the Israelites swear, you will sure, God will come to your aid and you must carry my bones up from this place. Don't bury me here in Egypt. And then Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, the end of the book of Genesis. So what do we see? Welcome to the book of Genesis, or how to go from the Garden of Eden to a coffin in Egypt. Like, it didn't strike us as that bad of a story until we remember where the story started out and how far humanity has fallen. But we also see that God's powerful word will prove true in the end, and people are living for it, and people are dying in hope of it. We see that there will be a coming ruler over the nations from the line of Judah, a Joseph-like figure, a suffering servant who will descend into the pit and be exalted to rule over all the land, who will bring God's blessings in abundance. We are waiting for Jesus. And we see that God's people are living and dying in hope. We're still waiting for a return to Eden, for to live in God's presence, to have the tree of life, no more death, no more cursing, to have unity among the brothers, not us murdering one another, to have the blessings of God. And even less so, we're waiting for the promised land. We're waiting for a coming king. We're waiting for the line of Abraham to be a blessing to the entire world. So this morning, family of grace, I want us to live and to die trusting God's word. That's where I'd, I'd, I'd camp before we launch into the book of Exodus. And I'd love us to respond to God's trustworthy word with wonder and trust and with hope. Let's start with wonder. This one's awesome. God's goodness and greatness takes human evil and makes good out of it. Joseph says, you you did me wrong. (laughs) 
you thought to kill me, and instead you sold me into slavery, pocketed the money, and you lied to our dad. Like, this was an evil thing you did. And yet, God used this for good to save many lives. And the goodness that God brought about it was so great that I, I forgive you. That in the end, I, I would, I'm glad it happened, as evil as it was, because of what God did. There's not too many stories or books that I can reference here that draw upon this picture, but the closest one I found is in the Silmarillion. J.R.R. Tolkien has two characters who are reflecting after a disastrous evil takes place. And they hear about some people who are pursuing such a foolhardy venture that it's doomed to fail from the very start. But they hear in it a glimmer of hope about the deeds that are going to be done. And so they say, thus, even as God spoke, to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought into the world, and evil yet be good to have been, and yet remain evil. It, I'm not sure it's going to be adequate for you non-Tolkien fans out there, but he basically says um, evil remains evil, and yet at the end of the story, when we look back and we see what God has done through all of this human mess, we'll realize that God brought beauty into the world that we never could have imagined. And so we'll look back and we'll say, evil, I'm glad that you existed for a time because of what God was able to do through it. It's kind of the closest picture I had. And so I think for us, if we see in the story of Joseph that God is, can take human evil and make good out of it, I think it would lead us in wonder to forgive our enemies. Like, let's just imagine Let's imagine you lent someone close to you $3,000 and they never repaid and they, they ran off with the money. But then all of a sudden, you heard about a government, a government program that you would not have qualified for had you had that $3,000. And because of that program, you ended up getting into a home that you never could have afforded in the past. And so you look back and you run into the person who stole from you and you're like, man, you wronged me. But look what God did through it. I'm not angry with you anymore. In fact, I'm, I'm almost glad. Or as Jesus says, let us forgive our enemies even as we have been forgiven. In light of what God can do, let us, in hope, forgive our enemies and those who have wronged us because who knows what God might do through this. And I'm convinced that at the end of our days, we'll look back and say, you know what? In a way, I'm almost glad that evil existed because of what God has done. I want us to wonder at God's greatness. I'd also like us to respond with trust this morning. See, God's powerful word, which created the universe in the beginning, will, in the end, create the promised future. It's a sure thing. God's word overcomes. God's word prevails. And one day, Jesus came. And one day, he's going to come again. He is God's word made flesh, incarnate, is the word we use. He is that lion of Judah. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the king of the world who rules over the nations. He is a snake crusher, the restorer of mankind. He is the one who is coming again. I'd love us to live and die in hope of him. I'd like us to respond in hope. And what would it mean to live in that hope? To live by a different set of priorities. To live according to the future that God is bringing about. To change the way that we spend our money, to change the way that we relate to people, to love and serve our enemies, and to say that the most precious things in life are the things that cannot be bought with silver or gold. We just transform our entire life. 
It would make us a distinct kind of people that would show the world who God is and, and what he's like. Uh, for me, it was easy. I was talking to uh, some family yesterday, and we were talking about money and joking about, you know, when you joke with your spouse about your life insurance policy, that I'm worth more to you dead than alive. And, you know, but then just realizing it's hard to put a price on human life. Like, really, I mean, look at the billionaires. Clearly, they're very satisfied people with great relationships with all their, their family. Money obviously solves all your problems, except it doesn't, not even close. What if we lived in the hope that one day God was going to bring about all of his promised blessings? And what if we gladly sacrificed things that the world says is very important, you know, power, prestige, money, and fame, and say, yeah, we, we don't really care about that. We're going to live for God's, God's way. And what if we died in that hope? What would that look like? Might look like Peggy Glazner. This is my wife's grandmother. She passed away a month ago. And the story of her life, you'll never find it written in a book. She didn't publish any work. She didn't gain fame for herself. She wasn't rich or famous or anything else like that. But the effects of her life and obedience to Christ are only just now beginning to be felt and will be carried on generation after generation through the lives that she touched. And when she died, I mean, this woman, she was ready to see Jesus. At the, at the turn of the new year, 2022, she told her son, maybe this will be the year. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll get to die now. When her friends died before her, she said, ah, they cut me in line. And when asked what she wanted at her funeral, she says, I just want a hot gospel message. And she got one. That's where we were yesterday. And she made a huge difference. She lived and died in, in hope and in faith and in quiet servitude. And when that time came for her to lay aside her agenda and raise five kids born in six years, she did. And to the end of her days, she prayed for them. She prayed for us here at Family of Grace. She prayed for me. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful. So may we, here at the end of Genesis, realize God will keep his promises. His word is sure. They're coming true. Redemption, resurrection, restoration are on their way. So may we live and may we die, trusting God's word. Come what may. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. God, thank you for the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for the lives of those who lived trusting your promises and who died in hope. Though what you promised, they did not yet see. And Father, though it has been thousands of years, I thank you for the testimony of your people, even down to today, that you are still the God that keeps your promises, that your hope is sure, that redemption, resurrection, restoration are coming. And so, Father, like Jacob before us, we await a coming king, the ruler of the nations, to come and restore all things. And until that time, Lord, let us live in faith. And if if the time comes for us to lay aside this mortal life and to rest with our fathers, may we rest in hope, trusting that one day the promises will come true and we will see you again in the land of the living.